Blog Talk Radio. Okay, we got a good one. God bless you. Welcome to the Blog Talk Radio. Let's go get in it. Derek Prince, The Nature of Demons. Derek Prince speaks on the subject, Deliverance and Demonology. Study number three entitled, Nature and Activity of Demons. In the previous study in this series, we dealt with the ministry of Jesus and how Jesus handled evil spirits or demons. In this study, we're going to deal with the nature and the activity of demons in general. But before we do this, it's important to clear up some questions of terminology. In this, as in various other respects, the influence of the King James Version on English-speaking people has been tremendous, and many people are influenced by it without realizing exactly how far it affects their thinking. So I'm going to take a little while to explain some of the basic Greek words that are used in the New Testament and to clear up some misconceptions that arise out of translations that we're familiar with. First of all, let's consider the word devil. This is a transliteration, really, of the Greek word diabolos, which is there in your outline. And the literal meaning of the word diabolos is slanderer. And used in the singular, it is normally a title of Satan himself and should not be used of any other person but Satan. The other word that we're going to deal with mainly in this study is the word demon, which does not occur in the King James Version. I'll show you in a moment why. The English word demon is derived directly from a Greek word daimon or an alternative form of the same word which is daimonion. You might imagine that daimonion is a diminutive of demon but that is not correct actually it's a neuter adjective and the two words really mean essentially the same thing and as I say the English word is demon. Now a demon is a spirit regarded by the heathen as divine or semi-divine. And heathen religion normally cultivates or seeks to propitiate these demons. All heathen religions really center around the cultivation of demons. Now this word is wrongly translated in the King James Version devil or more commonly devils in the plural. It should not be translated devil. That word should be reserved for diabolos, the title of Satan. This word demon, daimon, daimonion, is used in New Testament Greek interchangeably with two other expressions which are evil spirit or unclean spirit. So we have really three expressions which apparently in the New Testament are used interchangeably. Demon, translated in the King James Version, devil. Evil spirit or unclean spirit. Just to show you that these phrases are interchangeable, look with me at the scriptures given there in your outline. Uh, We are looking in various cases at parallel accounts of the same incident. In Matthew 15:22, we are told about this Canaanitish woman who came to Jesus because her daughter needed deliverance from an evil spirit. 
And she is recorded as saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, thou son of David. My daughter is grievously vexed with a devil, but more correctly, a demon. Now in Mark 7:25, the writer of Mark's Gospel says about the same woman in the same incident, For a certain woman whose young daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him, and came and fell at his feet. So where Matthew says demon, Mark says unclean spirit, and they're referring to the same thing. Then in Mark chapter 5 and verse 2, the well-known incident which is usually called the incident of the Gadarene demoniac, it says that when Jesus was come out of the ship, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. Now this incident is also recorded in Luke chapter 8 and in verse 27 of Luke chapter 8 Luke says and when he went forth to land there met him out of the city a certain man which had devils long time devils being more literally demons so where Mark says an unclean spirit Luke says demons these are used interchangeably Another passage that illustrates the same truth is found in the book of Revelation in the 16th chapter. The 16th chapter of Revelation, verses 13 and 14. John says, I saw three unclean spirits like frogs come out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet. For they are the spirit of devils working miracles. Devils, but more correctly, demon. So in verse 13 he calls them unclean spirits and in verse 14 he calls them demons. I think therefore it is quite correct to say that these three expressions are used interchangeably in New Testament Greek unclean spirit, evil spirit and demon. Now let's consider the Greek phrases used to describe the activity of these demons or unclean spirits in relationship to human beings. Now here is where the greatest misunderstanding arises out of the King James Version. There are actually three alternative phrases used in New Testament Greek to describe the fact that a person is in some way troubled or tormented by an evil spirit or a demon. The first phrase, which is very common, is to have an unclean spirit or an evil spirit. We'll look at the various passages given in your outline where this is found. We'll glance at them quickly, not pausing to dwell on any of them. Matthew 11, verse 18, Jesus says, John, that's John the Baptist, came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, he hath a devil, he hath a demon. So John the Baptist was accused of having a demon by the people of his day. And then in Mark 7:25, we've already just looked at that, but we can look at it again for a moment. This is about the Syrophoenician woman. Mark 7:25, a certain woman whose young daughter had an unclean spirit. And then in Mark 9:17, the man said to Jesus. Master, I have brought unto thee my son, which hath a dumb spirit. That's a particular 
type of unclean or evil spirit, a dumb spirit, one that refuses to allow a person to speak. But the boy is said to have a dumb spirit. Then we turn to Luke's Gospel, the fourth chapter, and verse 33. It says, In the synagogue there was a man which had a spirit of an unclean devil, an unclean demon. There again we see in that verse that an unclean spirit and a demon are used interchangeably or together. This man is said to have had a spirit of an unclean demon. And in Luke chapter 8 and verse 27, a passage we've looked at already, there was a man who had devils or demons a long time. And in Luke 13 verse 11, we read, Behold, there was a woman which had a spirit of infirmity 18 years and was bound together and could in no wise lift up herself. This woman had a spirit of infirmity, physical weakness, which prevented her from straightening her spine, what we would call, I suppose, spinal curvature. But in the New Testament, it's attributed to a spirit of infirmity which this woman had. Then in John's Gospel, there are quite a number of passages where this phrase, to have a demon or an unclean spirit, is used. John chapter 7 Verse 20, the people answered and said unto him, that's Jesus, thou hast a devil, thou hast a demon. They accused him of having a demon. And in John chapter 8, the phrase occurs several times. Verse 48, the Jews said to Jesus, say we not well that thou art a Samaritan and hast a demon. Jesus answered, I have not a demon. And in verse 52, the same chapter, then said the Jews unto him, now we know that thou hast the demon. And in John chapter 10 verses 20 and 21, many of them said, he hath a demon and is mad. Notice being mad is more or less equated with having a demon. Others said, these are not the words of him that hath a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? So we see that this phrase, to have a demon, is very commonly used in the New Testament. The second phrase, which is closely parallel, is to be in an unclean or an evil spirit. Now this hardly makes sense in English, and in the King James Version, the preposition in is translated with, but actually the literal Greek is in. Let's look at two passages in Mark's Gospel where this occurs. Mark chapter 1 and verse 23. There was in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, but the Greek says in an unclean spirit. And he cried out, saying, Let us alone, and so on. And in Mark 5, 2, it says, When he came out of the ship, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. But the Greek says, In an unclean spirit. Uh, I would say that the closest modern English would be to be under the influence of an unclean spirit. In other words, this man was not always under the influence of this spirit, but at times this spirit manifested itself through him, and then that is expressed in New Testament Greek by saying he was in an unclean spirit. In the Old Testament, it's said of the false prophets that they prophesied in Baal. In other words, they prophesied in the spirit of Baal and not in the spirit of God. 
The third phrase, which is also extremely common and is the important one because it's been so completely mistranslated in the King James Version, is a verb in Greek, daimonizomai, which could very well be rendered in English to be demonized. It's as close a rendering as you could possibly get. And in the English, it has precisely the same connotation as it does in Greek. It means in some way or another to be under the influence or attack of a demon. It doesn't say more than that, just to be demonized. Unfortunately, for the sake of English-speaking Christians around the world and through the ages, the King James Version has translated this phrase to be demonized by the English phrase to be possessed with devils. And this has given rise to more understanding than any other single phrase I imagine in the King James Version because the word possess is completely misleading and has nothing in the Greek to support it. Immediately you use the word possess, you bring to the minds of English-speaking people the suggestion of total ownership. If I possess my Bible, every page in the Bible belongs to me, not some of them. And so whenever you speak about having an evil spirit, a person reacts in an angry way and says, you mean I'm possessed by the devil? And they've got that from the King James. The King James, the, the Greek doesn't say that. The Greek says a person is demonized in some way or another, which is not further specified by that one word, under the influence or the control or the attack of a demon. Now, there's no suggestion that the demon possesses the person in the sense of having totally taken him over. Let's look at some of the passages in the New Testament where this verb, to be demonized, is used. Starting in Matthew chapter 4 and verse 24. It says, His fame went throughout all Syria, and they brought unto him all sick people that were taken with divers diseases and torments, and those which were possessed with devils, those which were being demonized, and those which were lunatic, and those that had the palsy, the paralysis, and he healed them. Various different categories of people who were brought to Jesus, those who were sick, those who were tormented, those who were paralyzed, those who were lunatic, and those who were being demonized, attacked, or affected in some way by demons. In Matthew chapter 8, the word occurs three times. Verse 16 says, when the even was come, they brought unto him many that were possessed with devils, many that were being demonized. Verse 28, when he was come to the country of the Gergesenes, there met him two possessed with devils, but the Greek says two who were being demonized. And verse 33 of the same chapter, they that fled, they that kept them fled and went their ways into the city and told everything and what was befallen to the possessed of the devils, to the people who had been demonized. In uh, Matthew 9:32, it says, As they went out, behold, they brought to him a dumb man possessed with a, double, a devil, a dumb man who was being demonized. And the evidence that he was being demonized was his dumbness. The only way in which the demon affected him was by making him dumb. The moment the demon went out, the man was no longer dumb. It would be completely incorrect to suggest that this man was possessed in the sense of totally taken over. One area of his personality only was affected, and that was the speech sentence. And then in Matthew 12:22, we have a similar case there was brought unto him one possessed with the devil, one who was being demonized, blind and dumb. 
and he healed him, insomuch that the blind and dumb both spake and saw. In this instance, the demon is responsible for the blindness and the dumbness. That's all, the only areas of the man that he controlled were those that affected his sight and his speech. And when that demon went out, the man could see and speak. To use the word possessed there is completely incorrect. And then in Matthew 15:22, we've looked at this twice already. This is the daughter of the Syrophoenician woman and she said, My daughter is grievously vexed with the devil. The same word is used in Greek, though the King James uses the word vexed instead of possessed there. But the, the Greek word is demonized. Then in Mark chapter 1, verse 32, it says that even when the sun did set, they brought unto him all that were diseased, and them that were possessed with devils, them that were being demonized. And Mark 5, 15, 16, and 18, in the account of the Gadarene demoniac, we have the phrase used three times. I don't believe it's really necessary to read them out because it's just a repetition of what we've seen before. And then in Luke 8:36, which also refers to the Gadarene demoniac, we have the same phrase. They also which saw it told them by what means he that was possessed of the devils was healed. He that had been demonized was healed. And incidentally, the Greek word used for healing there is the Greek word for salvation. He was saved. This is part of salvation, is deliverance from evil spirits. So here we see these facts then. First of all, that there are probably three different expressions used to describe these persons or entities. Demons, unclean spirits, evil spirits. And sometimes they're specified more precisely, for instance, a spirit of infirmity or a dumb spirit. The second phrase that's used is an unclean spirit and the third phrase that's used is an evil spirit. And the language that's used in connection with these is to have an unclean spirit or to be in an unclean spirit, that is under the influence of an unclean spirit, or to be demonized, to be in some way affected by a demon. Now having cleared up, I trust, though I'm not absolutely sure, some of the misunderstandings created by the King James Version, let's go on to consider the nature and activity of demons. What I have to say now I believe to be true. Part of it is directly supported by Scripture, part of it comes by inference, and I want you to be very clear that if you do not agree with my inferences, that's all right, but I have given good deal of time and thought to this and studied the scriptures fairly carefully and I am fairly well convinced that what I say is correct. Demons are spirits without bodies. You could say if you want to disembodied spirits but that would carry the implication that they once had bodies. Now I believe they did once have bodies but that is an assumption or an inference which would have to be dealt with separately. We need to distinguish between angels and demons. As far as I understand it, they're completely distinct. And I would like to give you three points in which we can distinguish them. First of all, angels have wings and they fly. Look in Daniel 9, verse 21. Daniel had a visitation from an angel, the angel Gabriel. And he's incidentally also called a man. And it says there in Daniel 9.21, Yea, whilst I was speaking in prayer, even the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning, 
being caused to fly swiftly, touched me about the time of the evening oblation. Uh, the Bible pictures most of the heavenly beings as having wings. Angels, cherubim, and seraphim are all pictured as having wings and being able to fly. And there are various references in Scripture to their flying. Now, turn to Matthew chapter 12, and you'll see that evil spirits apparently do not fly. And I believe this is correct. Matthew 12:43. Jesus says, when the unclean spirit is gone out of a man, he walketh through dry places seeking rest. There's no suggestion whatever that he has any other means of transportation but walking. Secondly, they have different places of habitation. Angels are at home. They normally inhabit the heavenly. There's many scriptures to this effect. We'll look at just three. Ephesians chapter 6. And verse 12, For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spirits of wickedness in the heavenlies, where I understand this to refer to Satan's angelic kingdom in the heavenlies. And all the persons there referred to are angelic. In um, Jude the sixth verse, and in case anybody has difficulty in locating Jude, it's just the last one before Revelation. Jude 6, the writer says, the angels which kept not their first estate or their first area of rule, but left their own habitation, God hath reserved in everlasting chains under darkness. These angels that left the heavenlies and descended to earth, and I believe scriptures elsewhere make it plain that they came in order to cohabit with human women are the exception and because of this act which was so contrary to God's ordained plan of being they were confined in a special place different from all others but if you notice that they left their own habitation their own appointed dwelling place which was in the heavenlies and then in Revelation 12 verses 7 and 8 a passage that describes events still future, as I believe. It says, There was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, that's the devil, and the dragon fought and his angels and prevailed not, neither was their place found any more in heaven. Up till that point, their place is in heaven. What happens after that is entirely contrary to the normal plan of God. It's a very brief span of time which uh, Revelation speaks about when the devil is cast out of the heavenlies and is compelled to take up residence on earth. But this is not the normal. This is the abnormal. Demons, on the other hand, as I understand it, are earthbound. They have no ability to get outside the realm of earth. Thirdly, angels have bodies of their own and do not normally desire to occupy another body. In fact, for an angel, as I understand it, to be inside a human body would be a kind of prison. On the other hand, demons, if they have one conspicuous characteristic, it is this, that they have an intense craving to enter in and dwell in a body, preferably that of a human being, but in the last resort, rather that of a pig, 
than to be without a body to dwell in. By way of confirmation for this, let's look for a moment in Matthew chapter 12, verses 43 through 45. Jesus is speaking and he says, When the unclean spirit is gone out of a man, he walketh through dry places, seeking rest, and findeth none. Then he saith, I will return into my house from whence I came out. By the phrase, my house, he means the body of the person that he was living in. So we see that he cannot find rest outside of a body. He wanders around until he's able to enter into a body. If possible, he'll go back to the body that he left. If not, he must look for another body. And he regards the body that he dwells in as his house, his dwelling place. The first time I ever had a real dramatic confrontation with a woman in the matter of deliverance, the first evil spirit that I commanded to come out, which was the spirit of hatred, it answered me in a very rebellious and surly voice and said, I'm not coming out. This is my house. I've lived here 35 years and I'm not coming out. So that Jesus is not using figurative speech at all when he says that the evil spirit says, I will return into my house. In Mark chapter 5, the incident of the Gadarene demoniac, we see also this intense desire on the part of the evil spirits not to be left without a body. They are pleading with Jesus, and it says in Mark 5 verse 10, He, the man in whom the evil spirits were, besought him, Jesus, much, that he would not send them away out of the country. This is a remarkable revelation, really. Now there was there nigh unto the mountains a great herd of swine feeding, and all the demons besought Jesus, saying, Send us into the swine, that we may enter into them. And forthwith Jesus gave them leave. They could not bear the thought of being without some sort of a body to dwell in. As I say, preferably they would choose the body of a human being. But rather than be without a body, they would choose a pig or a dog or a monkey or a lion. I believe there are many animals which from time to time are occupied by evil spirits. And the reason why they desire to be in a body is that they all have characteristic lusts or evil desires or evil propensities which can only be gratified while they are in a body. For instance, an alcohol demon has to have a body through which to consume alcohol. A blaspheming demon must have a tongue through which to blaspheme. A demon of lust must have the emotions and the organs of a body through which to lust. They cannot fulfill their cravings and desires unless they have a body through which to do it. And uh, as Jesus indicated, they're like people without a home, restless, unable to settle down without uh, any kind of peace until they find a body to enter into. This brings us face to face with the fact that every one of us is surrounded by unseen hordes of evil spirits who would dearly like to be inside each one of us. We cannot change that situation. The only thing we can do is make very sure they don't get in. But this is part of the total Christian conflict that we're involved in and the main situation cannot be changed. 
Jesus, as I've pointed out in my previous study, but I'll say it again, did not cast evil spirits into the pit or into hell. He just caused them to leave the body that they were occupying with the implication that they would be free to enter the next body that they could get into. And as it was then, so it is now. The next important thing about demons is that they have all the marks of personality. They are persons. And in most cases, you will not deal effectively with evil spirits until you realize that you're dealing with persons. My particular problem that tormented me for years was the problem of depression. And I tried every means I could think of to deal with it as a thing, a psychological attitude, a mental condition, whatever you like to call it. And I got nowhere. One day reading the scripture and looking in Isaiah 61, 3, I met this phrase, the spirit of heaviness. And at that moment, by a flash of revelation, I saw that my problem was not a mental attitude, not a psychological condition, not a fixation or whatever language you like to use. It was a person that was deliberately tormenting me. And when I realized I was dealing with a person, I was about 80% of the way to victory immediately. Up to that time, in dealing with this enemy, I was, as Paul says, like one beating the air. I was like a boxer blindfolded, trying to strike an enemy who could see me and always could avoid my blows, because I did not know what I was dealing with. And you'll find all through the ministry of Jesus, he invariably treated demons as persons. He spoke to them, and he spoke about them in the category of persons. Let's look at this for a moment and substantiate it out of Scripture. There are various recognized marks or attributes of personality. As far as I know, demons possess every one. The first one is will. And we have already seen in Matthew 12, verses 43 and following, that a demon has a strong will. This unclean spirit that had gone out of the man said, I will go back into my house from whence I came out. He made a definite decision and carried it out. And likewise, in Mark chapter 5, verses 11 through 13, we find that the evil spirits in the Gadarene demoniac had a very intense desire not to go out of that particular area of the country and to be allowed to go into the swine. So they exercised a very strong will the pressure of their will was brought to bear upon Jesus. And this is true. They have willpower. Secondly, they have emotion, and very strong emotion, too. This is very vividly illustrated in James chapter 2 and verse 19. James chapter 2, verse 19. James is speaking about the fact that it's useless to have faith without works. And he applies this by illustration to evil spirits. He says, Thou believest that there is one God, thou doest well. The demons also believe and tremble. And trembling is the manifestation of very intense emotion. And this I have seen and experienced many, many times, that demons still tremble. 
when they're brought out into the open and confronted with the name and the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ, you'll frequently see people start to tremble violently. It's not the person that's trembling. It's the evil spirit in the person that's trembling. And it always does me good to see them tremble at the name of Jesus. We had a meeting in this very room about two weeks ago on a Thursday morning. And the Spirit of God moved into this room, and one after another, the people in various parts of the room started to tremble and shake violently. No one was preaching at them, and I could hardly move around the room quick enough to get to the people. You see, the demons had been stirred up by the message which I had preached was on the power of the blood of Jesus, and they could no longer remain dormant. I've heard my brother in the Lord, Don Basham, say that it's somewhat like going after birds with dogs. When the bird dog gets to a certain degree of proximity, the birds get scared and rise up and fly out and reveal their presence. And that's the time you get a chance to shoot them. And this is really true. I've been in various meetings where the demons have started to fly up, as it were, almost in a covey and just manifest themselves wholesale because they get so scared, see? They're scared by the word of God and the authority of the name of Jesus and the fact that their identity is being laid bare. As a matter of fact, it's happened on several occasions that when I've started to cast the spirit out of one person and named the spirit, every other person who had that spirit in the room started to be delivered at the same time. I was uh, in some meetings in Greensburg in Pennsylvania and a woman said, I believe I have a spirit of criticism. And I said, you spirit of criticism come out of this woman. And about four people started to cough all around. So that shows you what the problem with the church is. <laughs> so here we have this second evidence of personality. They have emotion. Thirdly, they have knowledge. They know a lot. In fact, they know a lot more than some Christians. In Mark chapter 1, you find this illustrated in the incident of the um, man in the synagogue in Capernaum. Mark 1, 23 and 24, there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, in an unclean spirit, and he cried out saying, Let us alone. What have we to do with thee, thou Jesus of Nazareth? Art thou come to destroy us? I know thee who thou art, the Holy One of God. That man had probably never seen Jesus before. Not one of his disciples had yet recognized his identity. Not one of the human beings of his own generation knew who he was, but the evil spirit in that man knew immediately he was the Holy One of God. The same is also illustrated in Acts 19, which is a real lively incident I'd like to read to you. Acts 19, uh, and I think we start at verse 13, yes. Then certain of the vagabond Jews, exorcists, took upon them to call over them which had evil spirits the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, We adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preached. As I pointed out in my previous study, the Jewish people practiced exorcism in the time of Jesus. They recognized evil spirits and tried to deal with them in various different ways, as many of the heathen do, the Muslims do today, for instance. So having found out that Paul got remarkable results by using the name of Jesus, these unconverted Jews decided they'd use the name of Jesus too. And so they spoke to this man who had an evil spirit and they say, we adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preaches. And it says, verse 14, there were seven sons of one Sceva, a Jew and chief of the priests, which did so. And the evil spirit answered and said, Jesus I know and Paul I know, but who are ye? 
and they must have had, I suppose, the shock of their lives. <laughs> Furthermore, the language isn't, isn't uh, accurately represented in the King James Version because two different words for know are used. Jesus I acknowledge, and Paul I know about. I've heard about this man, Paul. He's creating a lot of problems for us. That's what he was saying in effect. Jesus I acknowledge, I know who he is, the Holy One of God. Paul I know about. We've heard enough about him. He's creating trouble for us in this whole area of Ephesus. But you see that they, they knew a lot. And there are other instances. For instance, we don't need to look there, but in the 16th chapter of Acts, the damsel with the spirit of divination knew that Paul and Silas were the preachers of the gospel, the servants of the Most High God, long before the people of Philippi realized who they were. Then again, demons have self-awareness. They're aware of themselves. Just take one example here. In Mark 5, verse 9, again, this is the incident of the Gadarene demoniac, Jesus asked him, What is thy name? He spoke to the Spirit and said, What is thy name? And he, the Spirit, answered, saying, My name is Legion, which is a group of about 6,000 soldiers, for we are many. So not only did he know himself, but he knew of the other spirits that were present there, and they knew their approximate number and so on, which is what I would call evidence of self-awareness. Then again, demons have a conscience, which is another mark of personality. This is stated in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2. We'll read verse 1 to get the context. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. Now the Spirit, that is the Holy Spirit, speaketh expressly that in the latter times, towards the close of this age, some believers shall depart from the faith, the Christian faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of demons. The second verse says, speaking lies in hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron. Now the Greek is absolutely definitive. Those phrases do not apply to the people who depart from the faith, but to the demons that deceive them. It's the demons that speak lies and hypocrisy. It's the demons that have their consciences seared with a hot iron. So a demon has a conscience, but it has been so seared that it is useless to appeal to it. It will never respond to the dictates of its conscience. Finally, as has already been indicated, demons have the ability to speak. Uh, we do not need to turn to the references given there in your outline, but it refers to the incident of the man in the synagogue who spoke out and challenged Jesus to the Gadarene demoniac, where Jesus carried on some kind of a conversation with the spirits in that man, and to the case in Ephesus in Acts 19, where the spirit spoke out of the man and said, Jesus I acknowledge and Paul I know about, but who are ye? So to sum it up, we would say this, that the scripture indicates that evil spirits have the following attributes of personality will, emotion, knowledge, self-awareness, conscience and the ability to speak and that without a question compels us to classify them as persons they are persons without bodies now let's look in Matthew 12 just for a moment and observe one fact there. Matthew chapter 12 verses 24 through 28. Jesus has just delivered a man of an evil spirit. The man had been blind and dumb after deliverance 
he was able both to speak and to see. And verse 23, all the people were amazed and said, Is not this the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, This fellow doth not cast out demons, but by Beelzebub, the prince of the demons. And Jesus knew their thoughts and said unto them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and every city or house divided against itself shall not stand. And if Satan cast out Satan, he is divided against himself, how shall then his kingdom stand? And if I, by Beelzebub, cast out demons, by whom do your children cast them out? Therefore they shall be your judges. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God is come unto you. Both the Pharisees and Jesus give to Satan the title Beelzebub in special relationship to demons. Now, Beelzebub means literally Lord of Flies. There is a modern novel with that title. I imagine many people who read it don't realize that it's the translation of the word Beelzebub. And this is particularly Satan's title as the ruler over demons because the demons are compared by analogy to the insect world, which is a very a vivid and accurate analogy in many ways because there are myriads, uncountable myriads of demons and they harass, they defile, they even bring death and yet often we're not aware of their presence or activity or even when we're aware that something is wrong we're not aware of what produces it. For instance, to take the example of malaria it's produced by the female of the species Anopheles, the mosquito and for many, many generations, Africans suffered from malaria, attributing it to all sorts of things like bad water and so on, quite unaware of the real cause. And as a matter of fact, you can have an Anopheles mosquito in your room, and it can bite you, sting you, and create the uh, infection of malaria. You'd never be aware that anything had happened. And this is uh, typical of the activity of demons. They act, in a certain sense, under cover, Often we don't realize that they're there, and even when we see something wrong, we don't know the real cause of it. And so, in Bible language, Satan is lord of the flies, he's lord of the insect world as the ruler over the demon. He rules over two kingdoms. In the heavenlies, he rules over fallen angels, and on earth, he rules over evil spirits. But this is particularly his title as the ruler over the evil spirits. Now let's consider some of the main activities of demons. And I've suggested that you can sum them up conveniently by taking certain fairly common verbs in the English language and considering these verbs. I have listed a number of verbs there. The first one is to entice. This is one of the activities of evil spirits. They entice human beings to do wrong. They make evil appear attractive. They set a bait for human souls. This is referred to in James chapter 1, verse 14, speaking about the mechanism of temptation. James 1.14, every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Notice there are two factors in temptation. There's something in the man that's perverted. A perverted evil desire, which is called lust. But there's something from without that plays upon this thing within. Because enticing is always used of an agent who operates to ensnare a creature. 
So the evil spirit from without presents to the lust within something to entice that person into sin. This is one of the common activities of demons. It's enticement. And I suppose few of us have not experienced this in a kind of verbal form in our mind. At least, I'll be honest with you, many, many times I've heard phrases in my mind, go on, why shouldn't you do it? There's no harm in it. Uh, whatever it might be. And uh, I've also been aware many, many times that my eyes are almost being compelled to turn in a certain direction and I know even in advance that if I turn my eyes in that direction I'll see something that will appeal to the unclean and defiling elements inside me. This is the process of temptation. If there were no lust in me, the demon would have nothing to play upon. But the lust wouldn't be stirred up if it weren't for the demon playing upon it. So there's the combination of the, the lust inside me or you and the agent outside that puts this in front like putting the little morsel of cheese in the mouse trap to get the mouse in there and we have to realize that we are dealing with an agent that's intelligent that studies us that knows our weakness that knows what kind of cheese we like best that knows the very best way to get us into the trap and the kind of enticement that Satan might use for me might not work for you. And I will tell you that I never really go to preach a message that's going to do the devil any damage without having my mind assailed before I preach on all sorts of irrelevances or impurities or distractions, some kind to get me off to hinder my ability to present the truth. And I know from experience that the devil knows just exactly the best ways to reach Brother Prince. They might not work with you, but he's used them so often with me that he knows pretty well how to get me. But praise the Lord, I've also learned pretty well how not to let him get me. That's the other side to it. I don't say I'm 100% victorious, but he finds it much harder than he did 15 years ago, believe me. A second main activity of evil spirits is to deceive. In 1 Timothy 4.1, we've already seen this, but it's good to look at it again. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, Now the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, speaketh expressly that in the latter times, the close of the age, some believers shall depart from the Christian faith. These are not unbelievers, these are believers. Giving heed to seducing or deceiving spirits, and to the doctrines of demons. How do these demons seduce people from their loyalty to Jesus Christ and to the truth of the gospel? By erroneous doctrines which they put before these people. I dealt with a young man once, years back, who was gloriously saved through street meetings that we held in London. And he was a, he was a model convert. I remember he got saved on Sunday night, got the baptism of the Spirit on Tuesday night, and was prophesying by, th prophesying by Thursday night. And in those days, it didn't happen that fast. Today, we're quite familiar with this type of thing. And yet, after a while, that young man went off. And he began to tell me that there was a voice speaking to him and insinuating certain teachings into his mind. And these teachings were precisely the teachings of Christian science. 
And yet I questioned him and he said he'd never read Christian science and never had any contact with it. So there was this Christian science demon perched on his shoulder insinuating these doctrines into his mind. And this tactic of the enemy worked. He got off. He never really became an, an effective, stable, victorious Christian. And I could hardly believe it because I was so ignorant in those days of the operations of demons, I could hardly believe that this Christian science demon could come straight to him, not through a book or through a sermon, and just begin to insinuate these deceptive doctrines into his mind. Of course, normally they'll operate through a book or through a sermon of false teaching or something like that. Another obvious result of demon activity is enslavement. Let's look in Romans 8:15. Paul is speaking to Christians baptized in the Holy Spirit and he says, Ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear. The spirit of bondage, bondage means enslavement. He's warning them, don't let the devil get you back into slavery. And the suggestion is very clear that the form of slavery they would be enticed back into would be that of religious slavery, subservience to the law when they'd been delivered from the law. And as a matter of fact, practically the whole of Galatians deals with this very issue of not being enslaved by religious legalism after you've once been set free by the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit. And as a matter of fact, Paul deals with that as a much more severe and dangerous situation than he does with sexual sin like fornication or adultery. It's quite remarkable, but the epistle to the Galatians is the only one that Paul doesn't begin by thanking God for the people he's writing to. He's got so upset by what they're doing that he launches straight into his subject. I marvel that ye are so soon turned away from the grace of God. Here's an example of religious demons bringing people back into slavery, which is legalism. And in the fifth chapter of Galatians, you remember, he says, Be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage, of slavery. Demons enslave. The next activity which I find so common with demons is to torment. Perhaps this is the most distinctive of all their activities. Second Timothy chapter 1, Paul says, God hath not given us the spirit of fear. There is a spirit, a demon of fear. And in 1 John 4:18, John points out the mark of this demon of fear. He says, fear hath torment. Now, there are many kinds of fear which are good. The fear of the Lord is clean and enduring forever, but there's a demonic fear which is tormenting. And I would say probably one out of five Christians has undergone some kind of torment from the spirit of fear. Then another obvious activity of demons is that they drive or compel. If you want to take an adjective, the adjective would be compulsive. Compulsive eating, compulsive drinking, compulsive talking. Anything that's compulsive unnaturally and unreasonably compulsive, in my opinion, is demonic. Uh, let's look in Luke for a moment for a picture there. Luke chapter 8, verse 29. 
speaking about this Gadarene demoniac again and the spirit in him, it says, oftentimes it had caught him. And he was kept bound with chains and in fetters, and he broke the bands and was driven of the devil, the demon, into the wilderness. Anything that drives you, pushes you, compels you, is demonic in my opinion. If it's unnatural, intense, and persistent, and it's very often religious. I know of a brother in the Lord that had a demon that impelled him to testify. That would sound strange, but he just had no rest. He could not stop testifying. And in actual fact, it came to the point where he had a physical pain in his chest. And ultimately, it was identified as a demon and cast out of him. You could say, well, that's very good to be testifying all the time. Not if it's compulsive. If there's no rest in it, it's not of God. And there are oh so many forms of compulsion that people are subjected to. Mental compulsion, compulsion of appetite, compulsion of speech. I know and I say it with regret, but I realize that before I was converted I had a demon that compelled me to blaspheme. I could not help it. I didn't want to. It just continually came out of me. Then another common mark of demon activity is defilement. Titus 1.15 Titus chapter 1 and verse 15 Unto the pure all things are pure, but unto them that are defiled and unbelieving is nothing pure, but even their mind and conscience is defiled. There are many people who have a mind and a conscience that's defiled by demon activity. I received a letter this week from a woman in another part of this country a sincere Christian woman trying to lead a good life, trying to be a mother to her children and a wife to her husband, but she said, I have no control over my thoughts. The most awful, obscene, unclean images and suggestions continually present themselves to my mind. Now, she did not desire them. She hated them. But she could not get free from them. And I would say that I receive letters or calls for help like that frequently. Let's pause for a moment and sum up these different verbs that present the activity of evil spirits. They entice, they deceive, they enslave, they torment, they drive or compel, and they defile. Summing this up, you can say this, that demons fight against peace in every aspect. And I have suggested in your outline certain of the obvious ways in which they fight against peace. First of all, they prevent inner personal harmony. The more I preach, the more important I see this concept of harmony. It's really part of the meaning of the word for peace. And I found comparatively few people have real inner harmony. They are not at peace with themselves. And if you're not at peace with yourself, you don't have much peace because you've got yourself with you all the time. There is not that real inner adjustment. They can never totally relax. Any person that can totally relax, in my opinion, doesn't have much of a problem with evil spirit. But there aren't many people in America today that know how to relax. Secondly, they take away peace of mind. 
They invade our thoughts. They bombard us with all sorts of suggestions, doubts, fears, lies, insinuations, accusations, condemnation. Thirdly, they attack our physical well-being. You see, the total word peace includes physical well-being. And Satan is a murderer. If he can, he'll kill us physically. Fourthly, they attack our harmonious relationships with other people, especially those who are closest to us. This is one of their main areas of activity, is inside homes and families and marriages. Jesus said, if two of you shall harmonize together on anything that, touching anything that they shall ask, it shall be done for them. If we can get to that place of harmony with one other person, our prayers are irresistible. But my experience is comparatively few people do harmonize with the persons they live closest to. And one of the main reasons for this lack of harmony is the activity of evil spirits inside homes, marriages, families, and so on. It's no accident that my wife has learned to be very careful with me when I'm on my way to preach. In fact, I should say my whole family has. Because it's just at that moment that one wrong word or one word misunderstood can just break that harmony which is necessary for the proper presentation of the Word of God. You see, if I don't have peace, I cannot transmit peace to others. I can preach about peace, theorize about peace, but I cannot transmit what I don't have. And many, many times when you listen to a preacher, you aren't really listening to his words. You're in touch with a spirit. He may have sound doctrine, it may sound very good, but if it doesn't come out of the inner experience, it's not going to achieve anything. At least if it achieves anything, it'll not be the right thing. And then there's also, they fight against our adjustment to our circumstances and situations. A person that has evil spirits finds it hard to produce the maximum of his ability in his job, wherever it may be. They'll distract you. You start to do one thing and end up by doing three other things and forget what you were starting to do. You don't realize that. But that's the activity of evil spirits. God just very recently showed me that I had been tormented for years by a demon of distraction. It's an extraordinary thing. If I start to get a message ready, I have to get up and do about three other things and go around and sit down in my chair again. And I, it's taken me something like 30 years to nail that one and see that it's not normal, it's not natural, it's not a habit pattern, it's an enemy. All right, let's close this. The great distinctive mark of demons, in my opinion, is restlessness. Show me a restless person and I'll show you a person that needs deliverance. And I see a lot of them every day. Show me a person that's completely at rest, I cannot believe they need much deliverance. All right, there are two main points from which demons operate. We'll deal with it very, very simply. I don't have a lot of complicated theology. They may operate from outside the body or from inside the body. I don't care about a lot of distinctions between oppression and obsession and all these other things. If people want to go in for them, they're welcome. But I've learned the basic question, is it from outside or is it from inside? And if it's inside, there's one solution, get it out. Whatever label you like to give the activity, the answer is get rid of it. And that's what I close by saying.
If demons are operating from outside, then we merely have to resist them, keep them out, drive them away. But if they're operating from within, the only permanent solution is to cast them out, to expel them, to get rid of them. And in my personal experience, I've discovered that if the problem is persistent, recurrent, and does not yield to ordinary forms of Christian discipline, you can be sure 99% the problem is inside and the solution is to get it out. If you would like information about further teaching resources available from Derek Prince Ministries UK, please call us and request a copy of our latest resource guide on 01462 492 100. You may also visit our website at www.org dpmuk.org or write to us at dpmuk Kingsfield Hadrian Way Baldock SG7 6AN Praise God. Chaplain John Durden, you got the mic. <clears throat> well, a quick note, I really enjoyed this uh, you know, because I've been studying about these demons for many, many, many Many months now, and uh, short meal, man. I really like that last part too about some of the um, what do they do to us? They can entice us, they enslave us, and they can torment us, and they can defile us, and all these kinds and and all the different kinds to make us restless. And so now it makes me aware that when I'm sitting there in the living room and I'm sobbing or feeling sad or disgusted with myself and everything else, I got to remind myself that it's not me because it's happening to me but it can be an influence of a demonic spirit. Naturally, ain't nobody going to think about an evil spirit. They say, man, I'm pissed off, I'm this and that and that, without knowing that they're being encouraged into those conditions by those thoughts in their head, and those thoughts come from demonic spirits. But naturally, you never come to that conclusion if you don't believe in demons, you know, because I know there are a lot still out there talking, man, you know such thing as demons, uh, they're all in hell kind of a thing. So when they ex- get these experiences of being enticed and enslaved and tormented and everything else and these evil thoughts, uh, about themselves or others is not necessarily them. It could be uh, a torment of a demonic spirit. So we got to re- recognize now that we go through all these emotional changes and everything. It's, it's not necessarily because we're sick or we need a doctor or, or we need a psychiatrist. It can be as a result of demonic influences. I really enjoyed it. All right, Chapman Durden, Block Talk Tech next coming in 10 minutes. God bless everybody. So see, we have a GoFundMe page now. Go to LiveDeliverance.com, www.LiveDeliverance.com, and our goal is 2500 We didn't say $16 million. We said $2,500. <laughs> We've contributed 120 so far. God bless. I want to thank those who've given. You can also go to LiveDeliverance.com on your lower left-hand side. Come in February 2024, Deliverance Kickoff Month, February 9th. Deliverance kickoff. Strictly nothing but deliverance for three straight months. Generational curses, transfer of spirits, evil spirits in your home, poltergeists, how to cast out demons, to recognize demons, what tools you need, and much, much more. February 9th. I want to thank Chaplain John Durden for participating, and we're going to see everybody in the Blog Talk chat text. God bless. So see www.livedeliverance.com on 24 hours a day. We're on 72 podcasts. Just go to Google 
and type in Emmett Overton on our Apple podcast. We're number five. You can't get no higher than that. We're number five out of five stars. God bless. Glory to the Lord Jesus of Nazareth. Chapman Durden, we're going to see you in Blog Talk Tech Text there, buddy. Call you back. Amen. <laughs>